Yeah, well, we've been in a series titled, Check Your Heart. And what we're doing is we're exploring issues that affect the quality of our lives that are related to the condition of our heart. Proverbs, and I believe Brent quoted this last week, Proverbs tells us to guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. So in this series, we're looking at things that can be toxic or poisonous to our hearts. Now, Pastor Brent, you guys did a fantastic job. He started the series last week talking about comparison. And when we compare ourselves to others, it absolutely robs us of joy. And man, if you missed uh, that message last week, I would just strongly encourage you to go out and give it a watch. I know you'll be blessed by it. Um, it's it's going to impact you. Well, let me introduce today's topic with a story. In my previous days, before I was in this role, I was a, I was a pastor to students. I was a youth pastor. We had a gal at our youth group who started, to, who started coming, and I'm going to call her Allie. Now, Allie... <clears throat> She was kind of a mess. And I say that as lovingly and as gently as possible, but this poor girl was just having a rough life, you guys. She came from a home uh, with two parents that kind of came across as controlling and, and domineering. She was partially deaf. She struggled in school, and she struggled to make friends. And when she came to our youth group, she instantly fell in love with it. We instantly just loved having Allie there. Now, I got to give credit. The students that I had at the time were so fantastic, you guys. They were so good. Man, they loved on her. They accepted her. They built her up. And she made, some, she made fast friends. She made good friends in our youth group. And over time, myself and the other leaders that were uh, a part of the ministry, uh, we discovered that there's some challenges happening in the home and we, we found out about some of the struggles that mom and dad were having as well. Financial problems, which led to marriage challenges. And it seemed to just be a very stressful and hard situation. And it's super cool. I'm so proud to tell you that our church just kind of stepped up for this family. We paid for this couple. Uh, the church paid for this couple to attend a marriage retreat weekend just to reconnect and maybe work through some of those challenges. We helped them with some financial aid. We were happy to do that. Uh, we helped Allie with some financial aid so she could go on like weekend retreats with the youth ministry and go up to Trout Lake Camp and, and uh, go on. And, you know, we paid for a lot of the things so that she could be a part of that because that was a challenge. Uh, guys, I'm just telling you, we poured a lot of time and energy into this family, especially Allie. And we saw, this is the best part, we saw this tremendous growth happening in Allie's life. Jesus, you guys, I'm just telling you, man, he was moving. He was transforming her life. It was so cool to see. And then over the span of a couple weeks, everything changed. I noticed that Allie had been absent from youth group for, for a while, which really wasn't normal because she was, she was like clockwork. So I sent an email to the parents just to make sure everything was okay. Like, hey, we've missed Allie. How are we doing? And the response that I received absolutely knocked me off my chair. I could not believe what I was reading. It was scathing. It was mean. It was hurtful. And it left my head absolutely spinning. In short, we were accused of brainwashing their daughter, 
trying to convert their family into a cult. And apparently they said none of the things that we had done for them was helpful. They topped it off by threatening that if I ever tried to contact them or Allie again, they would sue the church. I remember sitting at my desk, reading this email, thinking, what the heck happened? What in the world? I just, I couldn't fathom why these parents would not at least want their daughter or even them to be part of a loving community that was trying to care for them, right? A place that would foster love and acceptance and hope. And in that moment, I'm being completely honest with you guys, in that moment, a poisonous attitude crept into my heart. And it sounded just like this. Once my head stopped spinning. Fine. See if I care. From this day forward, I am done offering help or care to the people around me. I am not going to allow my heart to get trampled like that again. Friends, welcome to the heart issue of cynicism. If we were to make a list of prevalent attitudes that are destructive to our faith, to our joy, somewhere near the top of this list, I'm telling you, is going to be cynicism. Cynicism is an attitude of scornful or jaded negativity. It's a general distrust of the motives of others. In short, you think the worst of people and your circumstances. Cynicism is, can we be honest, it is increasingly the dominant spirit of today's age. It is. It's everywhere. Now, cynicism has an unfair advantage. I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of reflecting this week. Cynicism has an unfair advantage in how it takes a hold of our hearts because we can equate cynicism with being realistic. We assume the worst of people because, guess what? It feels real. It feels legit. It feels like we know what's really going on. We've figured people out and know how life really works. It's not hard to be cynical today. But let's be honest. Take a look around. We look at the war that continues in Ukraine. We watch the news, and we don't see anything getting better. Right here in the U.S., we see inflation continuing to rise. We see unemployment increasing. We look at the sad state of families today, right? And the rise in crime and violence. And what do we do? We put another check, check mark in our, in our minds of, well, what else would you expect? Cynicism. We look at how cruel and rude and downright mean people can be, and guess what? We don't feel any shock or shame anymore. We just accept it because that's the way of the world. All the while, we grow more and more numb to the people and the things around us. I found this quote by an author. His name is Paul Miller. He wrote a book called A Praying Life, Connecting with God in a Distracting World. And he talks about cynicism. And here's what he said, and I quote, Cynicism is so pervasive at times, it feels like a constant presence. Cynicism is the air we breathe today, and it's suffocating our hearts. Cynicism leaves us doubting, unable to dream. The combination, it shuts down our hearts, 
And we just show up for life going through the motions. How did we get here? How, how, how did I get here? I'm going to absolutely confess to you guys that I kind of had to laugh out loud when cynicism fell on my week. Because I am a self-diagnosed cynic. I am. I know I have a cynical bend. Now, for those of us who wrestle with cynicism, how did we, get, how did we become so jaded, you guys? What was the path that got us here? One of the books that I've been reading, such a good book, you guys, and I want to give him credit, is a book by Carrie Newoff. And it's a book called Didn't See It Coming. And he kind of shared with me, and I just had this like epiphany, he lays out the process of how we got here. Let me share this with you. Carrie says, that, Carrie says it this way. It starts with knowing too much. You know too much. You've been around the block a few times. You weren't born yesterday. Life experience has given you knowledge. Now, you'd think that knowledge is a good thing, right? But honestly, it will often leave you depressed. Can we just agree on that? Solomon, who was renowned for his wisdom in the Bible, put it this way. Let me show you this verse in Ecclesiastes 1. He says this, The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. Okay, not exactly the most inspirational thing you've ever heard, is it? Now, while that verse would make a terrible quote for a Christian coffee mug, <laughs> the insight here, the insight is actually kind of helpful, you guys. Because in some ways, let's be honest, ignorance is bliss, right? If we never had to interact with people, we would all be innocent and sweet and not so jaded. But we've all been burned. We've all been hurt. All, all of our hearts, I bet, in this room have been wounded on some degree. And we all have gained this knowledge, right, into how the world and people work. And like Solomon pointed out, what does it often bring? It often brings sorrow. I would wager you've had this happen to you. You've been around the block. You've been burned perhaps more than once, perhaps four, five, six times. And with each time you get burned, trust becomes harder because you know too much. Your neighbor's been too difficult to live next to, so what do you do? You build a fence. Your business partner maneuvered themselves and jockeyed for position to squeeze you out of a promotion or raise. So now you view all your coworkers with the same mistrust. Your heart has been broken so many times you find it's just easier to stop dating. <laughs> you know too much. You've experienced heartbreak, betrayals, and backstabbing. You've seen that some people can't be trusted. People are fickle and selfish. Boy, I'm really a bummer today, aren't I? I'm going somewhere. Don't trust me. Trust me. <laughs> the longer you live, though, can we agree? The more you know. You see scheming. You see manipulation. You recognize the power plays, the selfish pursuits that make up so much of human existence. Now, here's, here's what happens next. Because you guys are smart. We're smart. You begin to notice patterns. And when you see them, you start to do what cynics do by instinct. You now project past hurts onto future situations. 
You no longer see people for who they are. You no longer see situations for what they could be. You just see potential hurt. Past pain will become future hurt if you let it, so you simply don't let it. I'm there. Cynicism grows, you guys, when we start to protect ourselves from future hurt, even though we don't know the future. Having been burned once or twice, we tell ourselves we're not going to let it happen a third time. So we start to guard our heart. Oh, well, wait a second, Joshua. Isn't this whole series about guarding our hearts? Yes. But there's a difference between guarding our hearts, being wise, and the slippery slope towards cynicism. You see, what starts as guarding, being wise, it can soon morph, you guys, into something way more toxic. That guardedness, it can start to become jaded. You think you're wiser, but if you truly examine your heart, let's just be honest, just look at your heart for a moment. If you truly examine your heart under the microscope, you've found that what you're actually doing is you're moving past being guarded, and now what you're really doing is you're dwelling on hurt and fear instead. And when that happens, your heart begins to form hard, calloused walls. And when you've reached this place, you guys, this is the most dangerous place to be because guess what? Now you no longer trust, you no longer hope, and you, start, you stop believing. Don't stop believing. <laughs> hope, trust, and belief at this stage start to die. Guys, this is the most dangerous place to be as a cynic. We have, we have now projected our past hurts onto every future relationship and circumstances. We now apply one particular situation to all situations. And we think we're protecting ourselves from the future, but in reality, we are infecting our present. Your current relationships, I'm telling you, they're going to start to fade you're going to start to dwindle. You become numb to the people that you claim to love the most. You find yourself predicting cynical endings to things that used to bring you joy. Perhaps more troubling, cynicism poisons your relationship with God. Because when you close your heart to people, guess what? You close your heart to God. You find yourself trusting less and doubting more. This is the slow poison of cynicism. From knowing too much to now projecting the past hurt onto future cir circumstances and then watching trust and hope and belief slowly die in your life. Now what I've been learning, you guys, and what I want us to see together is that cynicism is actually a choice. You have a choice. Cynics are not born, they are created. Life doesn't make you a cynic, you make you a cynic. I should be pointing at myself. You make you a cynic. You make the decision to stop hoping, to stop trusting, and to stop believing. Now to be fair, okay, I've been, let's rewind. Now to be fair, there's a spiritual aspect to this, right? Because cynicism is a product of our fallen nature, okay? We are sinners by nature. And when we give in to our sinful nature, 
it's easy for us to adopt a cynical attitude in response to suffering or disappointment. It's easy. But guys, listen, God has better plans for us. He wants to heal us and rid our lives of cynicism. If up to this point, guys, this has been my prayer all week, that, that this would really just speak to you that wrestle with this. If at any point you're sitting there going, having kind of an aha moment like, oh my goodness, that's me. Listen, I am with you, okay? Or if your friend or your spouse is elbowing in the ribs, that's another way that could, you know, I'm just saying, maybe you struggle with cynicism. Don't do that. Be nice. I'm with you, okay? I wrestle with this, you guys. But let me just say something encouraging. I hope this, this, hopefully this will give you some encouragement. Cynicism happens not because your heart is closed, but because it was once open. And when life happened, hurt happened. So now you got to make a choice, you guys. We all got to make a choice. We can either continue to let the poison of cynicism build calluses around our hearts, or you know what? We can go to work on the antidote. We can. So here's what I want to do. Let's look at some of the warning signs. I want to show you three warning signs and then the countermeasures to becoming more cynical. So here's what I want to do. As I talk through these three things, I want you to take a self-evaluation, okay, as I talk about these three things tied to cynicism. Just don't elbow your friend. Don't think about someone else. Just self-reflect. First one is this. Fault-finding. Cynical people are fault-finders. They pick things apart. They readily see the negative qualities of a person, thing, or idea, and they are quick to point them out. Why? <laughs> I've been thinking about this one a lot. I think it's because pride sets in. There's this pride. It's this attitude that says, I already know the answer. Okay, I already know what the best solution is. I already know how this is going to play out. So I'm not going to listen or ask questions. I'm just going to pick it apart. That's a cynic. I think, as I, and I also want to show you biblical examples of these. I think Job's friends, if you've ever read the book of Job, were cynics. Or at least at one point they became cynical. They started to look for fault in Job's life. Now, Job, you guys, was the victim of a series of unfortunate events. And I mean, like, seriously unfortunate events. Yet his friend, and, and no fault of his own. And yet his friends adopt a cynical attitude and they start looking for fault in Job's life. I want you to look at what his friend Eliphaz says to Job. Look at this. Oh, no, 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 Job. No. Do you know why you're having all these problems? Do you know why you're suffering, Job? It's because you sin so much. You never stop sinning. Maybe to guarantee loans, you took things from people for no reason. Maybe, maybe you took a poor man's clothes to make sure you got paid back. Hey, maybe you failed to give water or food to people who were tired or hungry. Job, you got a lot of, you got a lot of farmland and people respect you, but maybe you sent widows away without giving them anything. And maybe, maybe you took advantage of orphans. That is why traps are all around you and sudden troubles make you afraid. That's why it is so dark you cannot see and why a flood of waters covers you. Man, can I just tell you, if I was Job and Eliphaz was my friend, I would have told him to kiss off. <laughs> Except I would have used a much harsher word than kiss. I'm just being honest. 
Cynics assume the worst of a person. Now, can I, can I bring it to today? If you're here, if you're a Christ follower, if you're a Christian, here's the danger we can fall into. We can fall into this trap in cynicism, and you know what we do sometimes? We disguise it. We disguise it as being spiritual, or even worse, discerning. Well, I'm being discerning. And we can criticize those around us, not knowing all of their circumstances, and we think we're discerning, when really we're just being cynical. Friends, humility is one of the antidotes to cynicism. We got to be humble enough to know that we don't have all the answers. Cynical fault-finding really is, it's a pride-tethered issue. What it does is it puts my thoughts or what I believe to be true up on a pedestal. And it places it higher than anyone else's thoughts or ideas. And by doing this, what am I now doing? Because I'm higher than everybody else, I'm now what? I'm now looking down on others, and I start to play the game of fault-finding. If you know you wrestle with this cynical behavior in your heart, if you know you have these moments, we need to listen to the wisdom and the warning from Paul. Listen to what Paul told his brothers and sisters in Rome. In Romans 14, he said, listen, you guys, forget, forget about deciding what's right for each other. Here's what you need to be concerned about, that you don't get in the way of someone else, making life more difficult than it already is. That is some profound wisdom, you guys. And man, that verse hit me this week. When I start to fault find, I got to remember this. I got to put on some humility and I got to stop the fault finding. Another sign that maybe cynicism exists in your life, sarcasm. Ouch. I'm going to go there. Now this one hits a little too close to home for me. I'm being completely honest. I like being sarcastic. Cynical people are sarcastic. Now, let me be clear. I'm not talking about a funny, lighthearted sarcasm that allows people to laugh and is endearing. That's not the type of sarcasm I'm talking about. I'm talking about that sarcasm that can be dart-like. It's a dart-like comment, and it's coupled with this tone that is nothing short of prickly. That's the type of sarcasm that I'm talking about. And I know what this is like because I use it sometimes as a defense mechanism. And I'm telling you, it's never kind and it never ends well, ever. I have had to apologize to my wife and kids on multiple occasions for the inappropriate use of sarcasm to try to make my point. I see a similar example of this in this kind of sarcasm in a guy named Elijah of all people. Yes, if you've been around and you know the Bible, you know, wait, Elijah? One of God's, like, top prophets? Yes. Elijah wrestled with tears. I believe Elijah had his cynical moments. Let me tee this up. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah has this big showdown with some false prophets. In fact, he even taunts them with some sarcasm. 
And these false prophets, in the moment, what they're doing is they're praying and they're trying to elicit in a response to their false gods and there's, they're not getting anything. So here's what Elijah says to him. Look at this in 1 Kings 18. About a noontime, Elijah began mocking them. Hey, <laughs> you should shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he's a god. Hey, perhaps he's off daydreaming. This gets even better. Maybe he's in the biffer. He's off relieving himself, guys. Come on. Or maybe, oh, maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's away on a trip. Or maybe he's asleep and you guys got to wake him up. Okay, now, even though these false prophets probably deserve to be put in their place a little bit, can we agree on that? You can't help but deny and see a little bit of a prickly sarcasm to Elijah here. I think Elijah was a cynic. Now the story goes on, because he's not done yet, okay? God, it's a really cool story. God does show up. He shows off. He shows everyone who the real God is. He turns the hearts of people back to him. It turns into this huge victory. And then a woman named Jezebel finds out about what Elijah did and says, Elijah, you're a dead man. I'm going to hunt you down. You are toast. And so Elijah, of course, freaks out. He runs away. He runs to seek refuge at Mount Sinai. And he has a conversation with Elijah in this moment. Listen, because the cynicism is still there. The sarcastic cynicism. Look at 1 Kings 19. The Lord said to Elijah, they're, they're talking, Lord, Elijah, what are you doing here? Listen for it. I have been zealously, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel, those people over there, fault finding, hey, God, those people, you're, them over there, okay, the people of Israel, they've broken their covenant with you, they've torn down your altars, they've killed everyone, ready for it, I am the only one left. It's just me, God. You're stuck with me. That's it. I'm it. I'm the only one left. Sarcasm? Yeah. Cynical sarcasm is often a symptom of disillusionment and bitterness in the heart. In Scripture, you guys, it warns us against such poison because it comes out in what? It comes out in unproductive and hurtful ways, just like this. And I love the wisdom of Galatians. Galatians warns against this type of bitter sarcasm because what it does is it hurts relationships. It's about people. It's about our relationships. In this moment, it was about Elijah's relationship with God. Listen to Galatians 5.15. But if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out, you guys. Watch out. Beware of destroying one another. Guys, sarcasm destroys relationships. It wounds hearts and it creates bitterness. Elijah just let it fly that day with God. Now, the cool thing about God is he's a big boy and he can handle it. But I'm sure it didn't help Elijah's relationship with the living God in that moment. Sarcasm destroys relationships. Last one, last sign, pessimism. 
Cynics are, by definition, pessimistic about life. Hope is always fleeting. Now, I'm convinced the entire book of Ecclesiastes was placed in the Bible as a warning to cynicism. It is essentially a diary of a pessimistic man named Solomon who wrestled with life. Ecclesiastes, you guys, is like the cynic's guide to the universe. All right? Why did this not very inspiring book make it into the Bible? I mean, seriously, read it sometime. It's not encouraging. But it's in there, and we can learn a lot from Solomon's diary entries. Listen to his pessimism in this text, Ecclesiastes 10. When you dig a well, you might fall in. When you demolish an old wall, you could be bitten by a snake. When you work in a quarry, stones might fall and crush you. When you chop wood, there is danger with each stroke of your axe. Dude, what a wet blanket, right? Seriously. Okay, moment of transparency. Let's just be honest. How many of you, while I was reading that, like you instantly thought of a person in your life and this is exactly what they sound like? Okay, I read these verses to my wife and asked her who this sounds like and she said me! <laughs> Come on! It hurts when it's true, you know? Thanks, honey. Hope always fleeting. Cynics find hope hard because hope is one of the cynics' first casualties. But the concept of hope, you guys, it's a thread that runs throughout the entire Bible. It's the center of the gospel message. You know why I struggle with, with my Christian faith at times? You know why I wrestle even with the Bible? Because it's so real. It's so raw. It's not a Cinderella story all the time. It's not. When you look at the Bible, what is it? It's violent. It's oppressive. It's bleak. You've got tons of tragedy, trauma, and scheming. In fact, it's any wonder that we read the Bible and we don't become more cynical. But I've come to realize over time something about the Bible. As I read God's story, and his interactions with humanity, one truth stands out above all the rest. God understands our world. He understands how brutal we often are and how terrible the human race can be. God sees how violent we can be. And without God actually intervening in human history, I'm telling you guys, it would be far worse than it is right now. Here's where hope comes in. And, and pushes against our cynicism. It pushes against our pessimistic view. Instead of letting our inhumanity have the last word, what did God do? God entered into the mess of the human story in the form of Jesus Christ. Jesus conquered hate with what? Love. Think about it. Humanity threw the worst at Jesus. Hatred abuse, ridicule, rejection, even torture and death. And what did God do? He turned it into life. Not just life for himself, but also life for us. Think about it. Pessimism 
was the dominant spirit on Good Friday. Despair had won. The disciples sat locked in a room and cynicism gripped their hearts and their minds. Nobody saw Sunday coming. Nobody saw hope rising. Love was dead. And then what happened? The resurrection hit. The most amazing thing about Christianity, you guys, is not that we have a Savior who came to deliver us, but that we have a Savior who sees us for what we really are and loves us anyways. And if that's not true, excuse me, if that's true, we will always have access to hope. Always. Your past is not your future if you get Jesus involved. Bitterness can be defeated under the constant assault of God's love. As long as Jesus is alive and breathing and resurrected, listen to me, hope will survive. Of all the people on earth, and I'm preaching to myself, okay? Of all the people on earth, Christians should be the least pessimistic. Why? Because the gospel message gives us the greatest reason to hope. And this hope, it's not based on our emotions. It's not based on how we feel. It's based on a living person who beat death itself and who actually loves us deeply enough that he was willing to die for us. So what were you discouraged about again? Friends, listen, when, when you feel, and I'm with you, when you feel cynicism creep in, you know what we got to do? We got to turn our thoughts back to Jesus. We got to remember the tomb is empty. You cling to the hope found in the living person of Jesus Christ. In fact, you know what I would do? I would encourage you and I, myself, I would encourage us all to memorize 1 Corinthians 13, 7. And when you feel pessimism and cynicism starting to overtake your heart, you give it a punch in the gut with 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Would you listen to this? Love never gives up. It never stops trusting. It never loses what? Hope. It never loses hope. And you know what? It never quits. Friends, that's what the love of Jesus for you represents. It's a love that never quits. It never gives up on you. And it will always be rooted in hope. You want to get serious about pushing back cynicism? If this is you, listen to me. If you want to get serious, if you know it's poisoning your life, if you want to get serious, talk to the people around you that love you. Ask the people around you. Have some humility and say, would you call this out in me? When I start fault-finding, when I start using hurtful sarcasm, when I start getting pessimistic, would you call that out in me? And trust them to do that. And then you know what you do? Then you turn to the maker. You turn to God and you say, God... Help me cleanse this toxin from my heart. Guys, we need Christ in our hearts. We need to invite Christ into our hearts to remove the anger, to dissolve the bitterness, and to make us what? A new creation. That's the only way cynicism is going to be defeated in your life. The ongoing prayer request of a cynic is to ask God to do this. I want to show you one last verse. 
It's in Ezekiel 36. This is God speaking. And every time I read this, I go, God, that's what I want. Listen to this. And I, God, I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. Guys, if you want that, I want that so bad. If you want that, all you got to do is, Lord, that's what I want. I want Ezekiel 36, 26. And you know what the best news is? He's in the business of redeeming cynics. He can do it if you let him. Amen? Let me close in a word of prayer, you guys. Let me pray for us. Father, I, I just, uh, first off, I want to confess to you that I am, a, I am cynical at times. And Lord, for those in the room that, that know that they're, they're with me, Lord, we just confess openly to you, we're sorry. We've allowed the sin of cynicism to creep in and, and poison our hearts. And so, Lord, we're calling out and we're asking you to do Ezekiel 36 in our lives. Would you soften our heart? Would you replace our stony hearts with tender, responsive hearts? God, would you just come in? Would Jesus Christ come into our lives and just begin to chip away at the junk, the poison, the pessimism, the sarcasm, the fault-finding? Lord, help us to work on that. So we just humble ourselves and invite you in. We know you can do the work. Why? Because the tomb is empty. And as long as you're on the throne, Jesus, hope will survive. So God, we're going to cling to that hope this morning. Lord, we love you. We don't want to stay the same we are now. Help us to be changed and shaped more into the person of Jesus Christ every day. And all God's people said,